This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Uh, Each and every episode, I say I'm excited for the guest coming up, and um, that rings very true today. But along with being excited to announce today's guest, I'm also very honored. Um, We have today on the program General Joseph Dumford, the 19th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the 36th Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, and newly appointed Foundation, Travis Manning Foundation board member. So we are thrilled to have you, honored to have you, and so excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the Resilient Life Podcast, General Dumford. Hey, Ryan, thanks. It's, it, is, uh, it is great to be with you. Thanks. So let's dive right in. I was trying to think about how I wanted to frame out our episode today, and I know um, that so many people are excited to hear from you. And I really wanted to talk about leadership in the military. And I wanted to focus on that um, and start with the simple idea of you've accomplished so many things in your career. And I believe that's best demonstrated by your nomination to top military positions by not one, not two, but three US presidents. But did you see yourself as a young Marine going that far in your career? Like, you know, did you first, did you see yourself with a career in the Marine Corps? And then secondly, did you ever envision you would become the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs? So Ryan, the, the short answer is no. And, and let me give you the background. So I knew from the youngest age uh, that I would likely go into Marine Corps. My dad was a Marine sergeant, uh, served in the Korean War. I had four uncles that were Marines in, in World War II. And, and I knew growing up uh, how important that institution was to them. My dad very seldom spoke about his experience in the Marine Corps, but I knew when we would go to ceremonies, when we would go to parades, the Marines him would play and he would brace at the position of attention. He would stand up, Marines would go by. I knew there was something kind of special about that organization. And of course, you know, just as a rite of passage, having uncles in World War II and a dad in Korea, serving was something that I was going to do. But I never anticipated uh, serving in a career. In fact, I signed an initial two-year contract to serve in the Marine Corps. And after I'd signed that contract, the OSO, which is the officer selection officer, that's the recruiter, asked me, hey, would you like to accept financial assistance for your senior year? And I said, well, what's the catch? He said, well, you'll owe an additional six months of active duty for every year you accept this stipend. And it was a pretty small stipend. And I said to myself, that's a trick. I'm not doing it. And, uh, and I did not accept financial assistance because my initial contract that I signed, in those days, they still had two-year contracts. I said, I signed up for two years. I'm going to go do two years, and then I'm going to come home. And to be honest with you, I probably spent the first eight years I was on active duty talking about the day I would get out. Uh, and then I ended up getting married with about seven or eight years in. And then we used to talk about after we had children in particular that I would get out when they were in middle school and 42 years after, uh, you know, I signed that two year contract is when I finally hit the off ramp and, uh, and, and took off the uniform. So no, Ryan, I, I, you know, again, I, I went to a uh, small college, very few people going to the military, mid 1970s, uh, you know, the evacuation of Saigon took place when I was a junior in college. So there weren't a lot of people uh, signing up for the U.S. military at that time. And, uh, and much of what happened over the subsequent 42 years was nothing that I ever could have envisioned. I think that one of the things that I, you, you've talked a lot, and I've heard you talk a lot about your father's service and how he didn't really speak about it a lot and um, your uncles, uh, but you 
have shared before with me and with others um, the story of Bella Wood. And I'd love for you to share that with our listeners because I think it, for me, I, I feel like it plays an important role in who you are today and the significance of that and what that meant in your life as you moved forward in your Marine Corps career. Yeah, so you're just talking about the historical influence uh, of Bella Wood. You know, um, because I had such an interest uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, I read a lot of books and uh, about the Marine Corps. And, and there were, you know, books that were probably tailored towards middle school and high school kids about the history of the Marine Corps and so forth. So I, I read those. And, and, uh, and Bella Wood was one of those um, historical examples that I read about and I just became inspired by the Marines. I mean, whether it was the term devil dogs, whether it was the absolutely uh, uh, dire circumstances that the Marines found themselves in, had every reason to give up, but they didn't. Uh, they continued to pursue and they were successful. Those were all things that were incredibly uh, inspiring to me as 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 a young as a young person. And so for me, you know, I knew about Bella Wood, I knew about Iwo Jima, I knew about the Chosen Reservoir, I knew about all those things when I was growing up and, and probably had in, in retrospect a very romanticized uh, you know view of those experiences because later I would actually have the privilege of meeting Marines who served in those places and my romanticized version of what it was like to be at Iwo Jima or well, the Chosen Reservoir was certainly different uh, once I put a uniform on that was when I was a young boy. But the point being that it was those Marines and what they accomplished um, and what they accomplished as a team. You know, to me, it was really important to be part of an organization in a team. So it was really not about putting the uniform on. It was about being one of the people in uniform. It was about when the, when the platoon of Marines would go by, I would say, I want to be one of those guys um, was, was really there. And then of course, I, it's funny you mentioned Bella Wood because my last Marine Corps birthday on active duty was at Bella Wood. Oh, wow. And uh, I had the privilege um, to lay a wreath uh, at the cemetery that day and then go down to the Bulldog Fountain and, uh, and drink from the Bulldog Fountain on my last 10 November. Uh, you know, I retired before the next Marine Corps birthday took place and, I look back now, uh, inspired to come on active duty by Marines that fought at Bellawood, and then actually standing there at the Bulldog Fountain, uh, you know, in, 19, eight, in, in 2018, that would have been uh, Marine Corps birthday 2018. But where, and, and it was, by the way, a long story that I won't share today, but why I ended up at Bella Wood on that day was not part of a plan. It, it was a, a complete series of coincidences uh, to include the story about the president not being able to get out there because of the oh, right. weather. Yeah. And I took his place that day uh, right. in laying a wreath and had all those things not happened. Uh, I would not have spent my last 10 November at Bella Wood. So it was actually a pretty, uh, pretty motivational uh, experience. I have to imagine. And, you know, you talk about romanticizing these Marines and, and, you know, I, I remember growing up and watching my brother as my dad was serving and, you know, I, there's a ton of picture of Travis, you know, when we're down in Lejeune and he's wearing my, my dad's camis and, you know, and, and it is like, I always say one of the first songs I knew every lyric to was the Marine Corps hymn. There's, there's video of my brother and I at three and four years old singing the Marine Corps hymn. And, you know, and, and you have this romanticized version of it and then you become a Marine. But for you to, hold the leadership positions you did in your, in your career. I have to imagine that there were some times where you did a little bit of like pinching yourself, like, Oh, I'm the commandant of the Marine Corps, or I'm the chairman of the joint chiefs. Did you have those moments? Um, it seems like your the last birthday ball for the Marine Corps was probably one of them where you found yourself there, but stopping to think like, look, look where I am. And, and again, I know it's not about, you would probably say it's not about you, but just the idea of like you started as a young Marine, not sure if you were even going to stay in beyond your, your two-year commitment and to see that you are leading the entire fleet of Marines and service members across the country. It's, it's pretty incredible. You know, Ryan, it is. And, and uh, you know, we started off 
talking about, did I ever expect to be here? And I didn't. And I actually think that one of the, uh, the things that helped me uh, in my career was uh, never expecting to get where I got. And, I, and I, it, it starts from the earliest time. I'll just share with the audience a quick story. I checked into Camp Pendleton, California as a new lieutenant uh, in February of 1978. And I tell this story to new lieutenants all the time. I, I drove through the front gate and I started to see the buildings. I started to see Marines out PT and I started to see, you know, uh, trucks driving around, tanks and so forth. Uh, there were still tanks at Camp Pendleton in those days. And I remember just feeling like everything I learned at the basic school in the infantry officer school, I just forgot. I remember being at Camp Pendleton and saying, my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I mean, tomorrow I'm going to be a platoon commander. There's going to be 40 Marines. And as, the, as my platoon sergeant at OCS used to say, 80 sets of eyeballs or 80 eyeballs looking at you immediately and saying, okay, Lieutenant, you're our new Lieutenant. What now? And, uh, and I would tell you, I had that experience every single assignment and through being the chairman where you don't ask for those jobs. Uh, that's a series of appointments that you get. And then you get to that job. And the first thing I used to think about is, okay, uh, am I good enough uh, to do this? Do I have what it takes to meet the expectations of the Marines uh, and sailors for most of my career? Soldiers, airmen, uh, coast guardsmen added to that at the end of my career. And I think what, what, mostly motivated me was always working hard enough to make sure that I did everything I could not to let them down. Uh, and so by, by actually being concerned about meeting those expectations, I think that was a big part of my motivation for, uh, it, it really was a part of my work ethic was not wanting to let down the team. And it goes back to that point I made earlier that I joined a team I was part of a team and all I ever wanted to do was be a valued member of that team. That's all I ever wanted to do. I wanted all of the other Marines to say, yeah, Dunford, he's a pretty good Marine. He's, you know, he does his job. And that's, that's the kind of recognition that, that a Marine wants to have. I mean, you want to be a respected, valued member of the team. And, and that was always my motivation and being concerned that maybe I wasn't where I needed to be. I think was probably in retrospect, uh, pretty helpful to me. Yeah. What well, leads me to actually what I wanted to ask you next, what do you think are the most valuable lessons that you learn, not necessarily from being Marine, but from leading other Marines? Yeah, no. And of course that's the heart and soul of, of what it means to be a Marine. And, and when I look at it, um, you know, Ryan, you remember that used to be that uh, everything I ever learned needed to know I learned in kindergarten yep. uh, expression. And I would say, just as you asked the question and I reflect on it, everything I ever needed to know as a Marine leader, I actually learned in the first two or three years of being a Marine. Uh, you know, my first battalion commander uh, had us all in the bleachers one day. And he said, hey, I'm going to talk to you about three things you need to know to be a good leader. And of course you scoot up in your seat and you say, okay, it's the Oracle at Delphi. I've got, got my notebook ready. I'm going to write this down. And, uh, and the battalion commander uh, who remained a great role model for me said, okay, the first thing you need to do as a leader is you need to surround yourself with good people. And then he kind of paused for effect. And he said, I actually forget the other two. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a great, it was a great way to make the point yep. that it's about the people. And then, you know, I just think back even the earliest days of officer candidate school where they talked about leaders eating last. And it wasn't so much just leaders eat last. That was a, that was a model for everything you do. It was a model for putting the needs of your subordinates ahead of yourself. It was a model for setting the example. It was a, it was a model for never asking people to do something that you weren't willing to do. And in my experience as a leader, I, I came to find, I, I, I don't think I had the confidence in this early on, but I came to find that the Marines never expected you to be perfect. They never expected you to know everything. They did expect you to, to look out for them. They did expect you to be committed. They did expect you to study and be professional and, and knowledgeable. They didn't expect you to be perfect. And, and you didn't have to be the fastest runner 
in the PFT, you needed to be good. You didn't need to be the best shot on the rifle range. You needed to be good. You didn't need to be the best in admin and so forth, but you needed to take care of them. You needed to make sure the records were up to date. You needed to make sure they got their awards on time. You needed to make sure they get paid and all those kind of things. And so I guess what I'm describing is that it isn't that uh, leaders that rise are uh, better than others. There are, there are many people, I think, that started with me, certainly, who are probably more talented than me. I think to the extent that you're successful is the extent that you can tap into that talent of those around you. And sometimes that means being smart enough to step back and let the initiative and the drive of those that are around you set the, set the, uh, set the course and speed, so to speak, in, in, uh, in terminology. So, you know, when I think back to the examples and I was blessed, I mean, you know, uh, I know many Marines have different experiences in the early days. I was so blessed because the foundational years uh, of my time in the Marine Corps I had leaders that to this day, I can look up to and say, I'd like to be like that uh, someday. I'd like to have that kind of impact uh, on Marines. And, and frankly, that was a big reason why uh, I stayed in uh, was uh, people asked me uh, why to stay in. It was a sense of guilt for leaving the team to my subordinates. And it was a sense of desire to have the kind of impact that my role models have. It was that combination that, uh, that caused me to stay in. You know, it's funny because um, one of the first leadership lessons I learned growing up, and it was my dad who used to say, you know, leaders, leaders eat last in the chow line. And, he, you know, basically you hear it all the time in the military, right? And so, and I remember when we were starting the Travis Manion Foundation, my mom was, this is at the time we've had maybe five or six employees and we were just starting to have titles to, as opposed to just a group of people working, we started to break it into like, okay, you're in charge of this and you're going to do this. And, and my mom, we were sitting at the conference room table and I'll never forget it. And my mom said, no matter what your title is, okay, if you're director of special events or you're the, the COO, no matter what, none of us are too important to take out the trash. And that continued on and and we really try to drive that in as part of our ethos at TMF for for our staff is like listen we're all we all have our our lane right but we're we can do everything and we should do everything and we're never too important or too high up to do anything that anyone else is going to do and right. that really stuck with me and I, I'm, I smiled when you were talking about the, as a leader, you know, sometimes recognizing this, the need to step back, let others uh, step forward. So I was invited to go to Travis's high school and, um, and, and talk about him. And so I was putting the presentation together with my dad and my dad said, you know, I think it's important that while we're, you're talking about Travis, there's so many great examples of leadership and men and women. And I think you want to give a bigger message to these kids. And so I actually pulled some examples of Marines that Travis served with um, to talk about. And then I was trying to dive in a little bit more into a great example of leadership. And I found the example of George Washington and that his greatest example of leadership was that he stepped back and said, it's time for me to step back and let others lead. And so that was the example that I shared with the students that day. But I laughed because afterwards the principal came up to me and he said, this was such a fabulous presentation. I'd love to go out to some other schools in the area and see if they'd want to hear it as well. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And I said, but get some feedback. It was the first time I had spoken publicly. Um, and I said, get some feedback. I want to know what worked, what didn't work. And he called me a few days later and he said, you know, the kids loved hearing about Travis. Obviously, he he went to this school. They feel kinship to him. They they loved hearing about the men and women that he served with. And I said, was there anything that they didn't like? And he said, well, they didn't love that George Washington story. <laughs> and, and it was funny, too, because before when I was sharing it with my dad, he said, oh, that George Washington story, such a great example of like, you don't have to you know, have a title or position to be a leader, right? And I'm like, yeah. And, and so, but the reason that didn't stick with them, I think was because I feel like they were looking for more relevant and relatable models right. at that time. But the idea of 
that's what leadership is about for me. Like knowing that there are others that can sometimes do the job better than you and, and being a true leader is saying, okay, you're up. And um, so I appreciate that you, you touched on that. I thought that was great. You know, Ryan, just come back for a minute because you asked me about Bella Wood in the beginning and, and uh, you know, the senior Marine in uh, world war one was of course, Marines will know this, uh, John A. Lejeune, the 13th Commandant of the Marine Corps. But the model for Marine leadership, and I think it's worth reinforcing that today, for me, it comes from him. You know, um, I remember at one point people saying, you know, you can pick the kind of leader you want. Some leaders are authoritative, some are positive and persuasive. And I, my experience is, no, actually, positive persuasion is, is the way to lead. And Lejeune describes the relationship between uh, the leaders and led in a way that I think is understandable for everybody. He said, the relationship ought to be that of a teacher to a student and that of a father to a son, a mother to a daughter, uh, and so forth. So when you talk about being unselfish and leaders eating last, anybody who is a mother, anybody who is a father, anybody who is an older sibling would understand what leadership means. It means taking care of those needs uh, ahead of your ahead of your own, and so uh, it's not that complicated when you when you really think about it. And just to the point about stepping back, and again, I think this would resonate with all of us. What I found most frustrating in my life was when somebody told me what to do, and then they hovered over me to tell me how to do it. And we make fun of my dad sometimes. We had to break him of that habit. When I was a kid, you know, I'd want to go out and play ball. And he'd say, Joe, you got to cut the grass before you go out. So I'd go out to the garage. I'd get the lawnmower. I'd start to cut the grass. And then he would come out and watch me cut the grass. And, and about halfway through it, he would grab the lawnmower from me because he could do it better than me. And I'd stand there watching it. And, of course, my reaction was, hey, look, if you're going to cut the grass, why don't you let me go do what I'm going to do, which is go play ball? Why do I even have to be here? But my point is that, you know, Marines, no matter who they are, to include senior Marines, you know, they, they want to be given the respect of a mission and then the latitude to accomplish that mission in the way that they are uniquely capable of accomplishing it. Because typically, they're the ones doing it. So they're going to know more about it than you are if you're the one telling them what needs to be done. And I think in the Marine Corps, um, in the early days, to be honest with you, that was not a core competency. I feel like my first 10 years in the Marine Corps, we had still a, a rigid, almost uh, World War II style of people telling you not only what to do, but how to do it. And then in the late 1980s, and I give General Al Gray, uh, the 30th Commandant, uh, 29th Commandant, a lot of credit for this. He came in with this thing called maneuver warfare, which, which is a lot of things. But at the essence of it was this idea of telling subordinates what needs to be done, making sure they had the resources necessary to get it done, and then stepping back and letting them do it. And that's what most Marines, and I would argue most people want, is they want the satisfaction of a purpose uh, associated with the mission and the fact that they got it done. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, the, again, that makes it, if you step back and think about it, the principles of leadership are actually pretty universal and the same principles that allow you to be successful as a corporal or a sergeant or uh, even in the civilian world as a brand new production manager or whatever it is that you may be, those same principles, honestly, I found were the same ones that applied for me uh, when I was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There isn't a difference. In fact, I would argue if you forget those first principles, when you become senior, you'll fail. Yep. I I can resonate with your father. It's something I feel like professionally, I'm very good at letting others lead. And when I know that's their expertise, I'm, I'm a fire and forget like, hey, this is what we need to get done. Go do it. At home, I, I can fail that a lot. I am, I am the mother that is grabbing the lawnmower out of my kids' hands. And so it was, it was actually just recently, my 12-year-old had a friend over and they wanted to bake cookies. And I was 
like helicopter over top of my <laughs> flower on the floor. I didn't want, and, and honor said, mom, can't you just let us do it? And I said, okay. And I actually had to walk into my bedroom and shut the door because I, I knew that I would not be able to just stand there and quietly observe. So I walked and I came out and they had baked beautiful cookies. But in my mind, I didn't think that two 12 year old girls were going to be capable of doing it. And, right. and I, I actually felt proud of myself that I was able to let them that small little thing, but for, for them, they, they accomplished something on their own without, you know, and she came in and got me as, can you put the pan into the oven? Of course I can do that. But she knew that's where she needed to ask for help. Right. And right. that's where I was able to help her. It's the small kind of um, example, but one, you know, that I, I definitely have to work on at home. You know, Ryan, one, one, one more point about that, because I think it's important when you talk leadership. I used to tell leaders, there were times, and I think when I learned to do this, uh, it was a big moment for me. When you tell people to do things and you actually have a better way of doing it. Why? Because in many cases, you're more experienced, you've done more sets and reps. And so something that that is there, it is a discovery experience for them is is a is a repetition for you. And I think when you learn that it isn't really about the outcome of a specific uh, task, that's what's important. It's over time, you know, giving them the confidence that really sharing that you have the confidence in them that then gives them the confidence in accomplishing that task is a far more, that's a deep fight issue, right? That's, that's actually what's strengthened in the organization. And that takes a bit of discipline for a leader, you know, to see that something is, eh, I could probably do this better if they did it that way. But to know that if it's good enough and it contributes to that individual's confidence that, you know, they can do it. And it contributes to the relationship of trust that is so important between leaders and led that a suboptimal uh, solution for a specific task is far less important than the overall relationship and the confidence and the trust that's being developed. And that, that is something that I think, uh, I'm not saying I, I was capable of that from day one, because I think there's, if you're a perfectionist, uh, and there'd be maybe one or two of us on the line today who, who feel compelled to, to strive towards perfection at times. If you're a perfectionist, to, to learn to step back and accept good enough for a, for a more important reason is actually something you got to develop over time. But I think that's what creates initiative inside of organizations, that creates resilience inside of organizations. It creates flexibility on the, on the other side. If you're the one that is telling them what to do and how to do all the time, there's a brittleness in that organization because if they're confronted with unique circumstances for which they're not prepared and you're not there, they're not going to have that same confidence in themselves that they know what needs to be done and they're going to go after it. So I think that is, you know, I think for me, that was probably one of the things I learned over time that, uh, that held me in good stead. That's, that's so incredibly insightful. And I, I love that, you know, if you can accept good enough for a better outcome, you know, for a greater outcome of what you're doing in terms of building the confidence of others, I think that's so important. And I think that's such a great way to look at it because again, it's very easy to be like, well, yeah, you know what, just do it this way because it's easier or it's quicker or it's more efficient. Um, I love that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be writing notes when I play this episode back so I can uh, I can gather some of this insight even more. And, you know, one of the things I often think about is, you know, you hear the the ox oxygen mask analogy, right, as it comes to parenting in order to ensure that your children are safe. You know, you put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Um, do you think that same philosophy is true for leaders in order to be most effective at your job that you had all those years? How did you keep yourself healthy and prepared? Yeah. First of all, Ryan, there's probably one or two people that know me on the line. So if I start to wax eloquently about 
balanced excellence and taking care of myself and sleeping properly and all those things, they'll all throw down the BS flag. All your bluff. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, they're, they're going to, but, but it doesn't mean I wasn't always trying to do that. And I think what, what you're really getting at is that whether it's sleep, whether it's eating right, whether it's physical fitness, you know, if you're going to keep withdrawing from your account, you have to make deposits. You have to make deposits. And, and, you know, there are times for short periods of time when you can surge and you can not, not get proper sleep. You cannot pay attention to your relationships at home. You can, you can, you can run on fumes, but eventually you're going to hit a culminating point. And this is the point I would make is as a leader, you should never hit that culminating point. You, you have to continue to endure it. You have to continue to lead always. You can't take an operational pause because you ran yourself into the ground. That's not being a good leader. And so I do think um, that, you know, if I thought about leadership, there's a certain degree of concentric circles around yourself. I mean, your own relationships and your own health and your own professional development are enablers for you to be able to lead and to take care of others. And I do think there's a certain degree of truth to it. If you don't take care of yourself, how can you possibly be expected to take care of other people? And then the other thing, although I won't argue that I was always the best example, but I was always in, you know, it's kind of like the union. I was always in pursuit of a more perfect leader. Uh, it didn't always, didn't always get there. But um, when it comes to um, rest and, and, physical exercise and those kind of things is a certain degree of setting an example as well. Because if, if you're somebody who never goes on leave or takes a break, if you're somebody who doesn't work out and take care of yourself, if, she, if you're somebody who doesn't sleep properly, and if you're somebody who doesn't pay attention to your personal relationships, your family, your children, and so forth, what kind of example is that to your subordinates? And I always feel like, um, it's very hard for me to think about a leader who has a compartmentalized life. In other words, you're a bad husband or a spouse, you're a bad mother or father, you're a bad friend, but you're a good leader. I, I, I don't think so. Right. In other words, I think you got to have bees and everything at least uh, to be, to be a successful leader, because I think every aspect of your life is open to scrutiny when you're a leader. And I think particularly if you're in an organization that is like the Marine Corps, where we say, look, you are representative of the institution 24 hours a day, you're responsible for your people 24 hours a day, then everything about your life from cashing a check and you put your name on there, what you're saying is there is in fact money in my account, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what you're what? saying. So everything that you do has to reflect the values of the institution. Otherwise people will look at you as a fraud. And, and I talked earlier about, you know, people don't, leaders don't expect you, I mean, your subordinates don't expect you to be perfect, but they do expect you to have character. They do expect you to tell the truth. There are certain things that uh, they expect to be always. Uh, performance, there's probably, there's probably room for, hey, I booted that one. Uh, but issues of character, uh, issues of integrity, you don't get do-overs on those. And I think as soon as, as you violate that, people look at you and it's going to be very, very hard for you to have the moral high ground and be an effective leader, no matter what walk of life you're in. Was there ever a time where you felt like you experienced a frustrating side of leadership or um, in a time where you felt like really you were struggling with leadership, anything that you can speak to? Um, good example of, you know, again, it's great to, to talk about this is what you need to do to be a leader. These are the things yeah. that you need to practice. But like, what about when things get really tough? Was there, wh where were the times where you were really struggling uh, as a leader? Sure. You know, there's, there's, there's probably a, uh, a, there's a, there's a personal uh, side of that that immediately comes to mind. And then there's the bigger professional side. And, and I know um, for me, even in my last four years on active duty, trying to navigate the political space and, uh, and have the credibility to influence uh, decisions at the level of the president, trying to have credibility before the Congress, trying to have credibility in the eyes of your subordinates, 
trying to have credibility in the eyes of your peers, trying to have the trust and confidence of the mothers and fathers who, who give us uh, their young people is an incredibly difficult thing. And, uh, and many times what you're working on, uh, it's very easy when you're a junior leader and you're responsible for a task and you're not dependent on anybody else outside of your unit, right? So that's clean. You can, you can, you can just put together the team and you can go accomplish the task. You can get it done. The more senior you become, the more complex what you're involved in becomes and the more dependent you become on others. And, uh, and sometimes when you feel like you have done all you can do and others haven't necessarily stepped up and done what they can do, it's easy to become frustrated. It's easy to become sometimes bitter. It's easy to become, uh, you know, um, despondent even. But I, what I, so you have to grind through that and you, and you, and you've got to, you've got to kind of work your way through that. And I think one of the things that, uh, that I learned over time is that you got to communicate and you got to talk to people. You cannot suffer in silence when you're in company with those things. It doesn't mean that you have to be difficult. It doesn't mean that you're yelling and screaming at people to get done what they need to get done. But it does mean having very honest, very candid conversations uh, and uh, productive conversations to get other people to do things. Many of whom um, you're leading by persuasion because you have no authority over them. This is when it really becomes tough as a leader. When you have a wire diagram, so to speak, where you work for me, you know you work for me, I know you work for me, that's pretty clean, it's easy. What's difficult is when you have to lead a team through influence and persuasion, when you, have, you need unity of effort, you need to get the job done, but you don't necessarily have command and control, right? You don't, you don't, you don't have tasking authorities. So learning to lead in, the, in that environment um, was frustrating, but eventually rewarding because you know the last few jobs I had really, in many cases, I was leading peers who I did not necessarily have authority over, whether they were allies and partners from other countries or whether they were four stars who were not, you know, I, as, as the chairman, I was in the chain of communications. I was not in the chain of command. So I couldn't tell people what to do, but I did have to convey what needed to be done with some expectation that they would do it. That's a different art. That's yeah. a different, that's a different approach. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, when you, talk about you know the different frustrations that can come with a leader i think that's really important to look at you know as you speak of you know there are there are times where you need to lead your peers and you know it's not just about that chain of command or that hierarchy of okay well obviously i'm going to tell you you may not think it's right but i'm going to tell you this is what needs to be done and um i think i want to give you big kudos for the way that you led uh, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, you know, obviously I know you on a personal level, but um, your leadership is talked about on many different levels from many people who knew you well and didn't know you as well. And just um, the way you led was admirable. And uh, it's one of the reasons that um, as soon as you left that post as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I was in your ear, uh, constantly bugging you to see if I could get you to join our organization and come on to the board at the Travis Mannion Foundation. We had many conversations over the years about the work that we did and um, really talked a lot about, and you talked about it, uh, uh, you've got to always stick with the character. You know, that's, that's a really important piece as a leader. Um, that's something that was really important to us when we were creating the Travis Manning Foundation and talking about what we really wanted to play a part in. And, and for that, it was helping to build that next generation of leaders because we understood that Travis did not become the Marine and the person he was, the leader he was. Um, he did not demonstrate the leadership he did on April 29, 2007 by chance. Those were because he was around and had access to great leaders and mentors who helped to shape his character 
And um, we wanted to make sure that we were doing that uh, through the organization that bears his name. And, you know, I'd love to talk to you, you know, a lot of what you've done in this next phase of your life continues to connect and serve the military community. And, um, you know, I want to talk to you about like your connection with us, but more uh, what perspective it's given you outside of uniform uh, about our, our military and military families. Yeah. So, so Ryan, one of the things that um, Travis Manion Foundation recognizes is the the potential of veterans to continue to serve, right? So you don't have to be in uniform. You don't have to be on active duty to serve. In fact, I think if you talk about what do we need to do in our country to help us move through some of the challenges we're dealing with is we do need leadership. There's, there's, you know, that's, that's the core of, of solving the problems that we have. And I think that that's the mission uh, of the organization. And so what I have found incredibly rewarding, when you retire or you leave active duty, even if you're a young sergeant after four years or a corporal or you're a general after 40 years, you feel like you've learned some things and you feel like the, you've learned some of them really the hard way. And, uh, and, and you have a strong desire, at least I do, and I see many others with a strong desire. You have a strong desire, I'll use the expression, you have a sea bag of lessons learned, right? So you get this big green bag and stuffed inside that bag are all these things you learned along the way. And you don't wanna just put that in the closet and, and forget about it. You actually wanna offload it. You wanna, you wanna share those lessons learned with, with other people. And, and that's what I have found to be incredibly rewarding in this phase. I mean, uh, you mentioned the Manion Foundation, really proud to be a part of the team. Although I will tell you, I have all the regard, high regard in the world for your dad. I really think the world of you. But when I think of the Travis Manion Foundation, I think of your mom uh, first. And I think of the first couple of times I met her. And I've heard you say, that you wish that your brother could have seen uh, the leader that you've become. I, I, when I heard you say that one time, I thought, well, actually, I'd love to have your mother see the leader that you become because you, you, uh, you know, the first couple of times I met her, I stepped back, I said, wow, that is a force of nature. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you just knew that if she thought something needed to happen, she might suggest it once or twice, but if it wasn't happening, by the third time, she was going to do something uh, that was going to make it happen. Yes. And uh, and so when I, you know, when you asked me to be a part of the organization, you know, obviously Travis's DNA is in the organization, but your mom's DNA is in the organization as well. And so it was an easy choice to make. But that's one organization. Another thing I'm doing, in fact, I'll spend some time with them tomorrow is that, you know, there's, uh, there's probably about 20 uh, U.S. military officers going to school up in the, uh, in the Cambridge area. And so I spend, uh, I don't know, um, certainly a few hours a month uh, sharing with them uh, lessons learned on everything from trying to balance, you know, being a family uh, to being uh, a leader to dealing with uh, great power competition and some of the things I've, I've learned along the way. And that's pretty rewarding. And just before this podcast, I just did a town hall with a bunch of folks in OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense that are working industrial policy. And people would say, well, what is that all about? Well, what I was trying to tell them was, it may not seem very important, but when you're on the outside looking in, actually what you're doing is important. And so for me, it's, uh, and I'm obviously also working with uh, uh, an organization that deals with the catastrophically wounded, ill and injured Marines to make sure that what? make sure that they have the quality of life that I think they deserve and make sure that they're working towards independence, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, with their future. Because I guess, Ryan, when I talk about veterans, um, I mentioned earlier, and I know there's some folks that were in the same generation as me on the line. I came in during a post-Vietnam period. And, and what I do remember uh, growing up was how little regard people had for veterans during that time. And I remember the day that I uh, let people know I was going in the Marine Corps and many of the reactions were, why are you doing that? In other words, it, it was not seen as an honorable thing to do. It wasn't seen as a, as a path towards something that was really uh, a contribution to society and so forth. And what I 
really feel strongly about is that we are in a good place today. And I think Vietnam veterans helped us get there where veteran service is appreciated, it's recognized. And there are some great organizations uh, that I'm a part of that, that recognize and, and support veterans. But I wanna make sure that that's true 20 years from now and 25 years from now. And I worry about that. And I think that's okay. In other words, there's times not to be complacent. There's times to be worried about it. There's times not to take things for granted. And we shouldn't take the support that veterans have had over the last couple of years for granted as we move forward. Even recently, we were at about a 75% uh, favorability rating in the Department of Defense a year or two years ago. We're down to 56% today. That's how quickly it can change. It, it changes. And so when I think about veterans, first and foremost, I think about our obligation. You know, you talked about George Washington earlier. The great expression that George Washington gave us is that the willingness of future generations to serve will be determined by how we treat this generation of veterans. He said that about those who fought in the revolution. It's exactly the point. So if, if we're going to expect others to do what must be done for our country in the future, then we got to treat those who have made sacrifices for service, in some cases, extraordinary sacrifices for service, ultimate sacrifices. We got to treat them and their families the right way. That's point one. But point two, and it's just as important as the incredible talent that we have inside the US military. That's what I recognize now, even as I've taken on the off the uniform and I'm involved in other things, I realize that I spent my whole adult life around young men and women who really were different, who really did have a sense of purpose, a sense of commitment, a sense of duty that is not normal. And, and the more that we take advantage of that talent, of that commitment, uh, the better off we're going to be as a country. And I think the best example, the World War II generation came back and by all accounts, rebuilt our country. Uh, for you and I, some of the school teachers, some of the coaches, some of the people in the community were Vietnam veterans or later. And I think that this generation of veterans that I have been personally privileged to serve with, um, they have a lot to offer. And that's what's great about uh, TMF is that what we're all about is helping them get to a point where they're in a position to deliver it. Yeah. And, uh, and they can make a difference. Hell, they're doing it every day. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think about that. I was just actually just the other day. Um, I was in D.C. and I actually was at the Vietnam Memorial. We were filming with USAA um, for Memorial Day. And um, it was the first time I remembered being when I lived in the D.C. area, going on a field trip there. It didn't sink in. It didn't have the same impact. I remember walking by there. But I spent a lot of time just reading those names and watching. And when you get to the point in the, the, the wall, it actually shows you the first name. And then right there at the, the other piece of granite is, the, last, is the, last, the first service member that was killed and the last service member that was killed. And to see that it spanned um, so many years and I was standing next to um, someone and I said, you got to think about the story of the first Vietnam service member that was killed and then the last one and all those stories in between. And we started to have that same conversation that you just said that, you know, they weren't welcome backed in the right way. And they weren't, you know, when, when you hear today, I'm, I'm joining the Marine Corps, or I'm, I'm joining the service. It's kind of like, that's awesome. I mean, at least for me, you know, and, right. and I think that a majority of Americans feel that sense of pride and um, uh, th they appreciate that people are going out to serve. And I just, I can't even imagine living in a world where that isn't the norm, where our service members aren't treated regardless of the conflicts that we're in or the different things that are happening politically. I think that's one place that we as a country have been able in the last several years to come together and appreciate no matter what the service of our men and women in uniform. Right. And I'm, I like you want to make sure that Vietnam was not that long ago. So you see how quickly things can change. And I yeah. never want that 
esteem and honor for our men and women who decide to put on the uniform to go away. So I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Um, Ryan, if I could just on yeah. something that you, you would, this would resonate with you and, and some others. I think about two examples. So we lost a Marine um, who was from Massachusetts when I was in Afghanistan. And, you know, it, it was, it was December 22nd and, uh, and, and it was a sad kind of Christmas time and everything. And then while we were there, we got reports of what happened. And when that Marine arrived at Logan airport, you know, it was like a hundred police cars and all the way home, uh, the streets were lined, flags were there, signs were there. Uh, his family was embraced and, and the entire, really the state um, paused for a moment to say that what that Marine did was really important. Contrast that to uh, in my neighborhood, one of the names on the wall is a staff sergeant by the name of Walsh. He's a Marine. And he grew up about maybe uh, 200 meters, uh, 200 yards from me as a kid. And his dad, I delivered newspapers. His dad used to walk back and forth all the time. I used to talk to his dad, Mr. Walsh. And I remember when Staff Sergeant Walsh was killed, the church was about, you know, less than a quarter mile from my house. And people went up there. My dad, because of my dad being a Marine, he, he went up there and the church was half full, Ryan. And there was no, there was no procession. It was a family largely by themselves with a few members of the local community and, and a greater family who paused for Staff Sergeant Walsh and went to the cemetery largely uh, uh, alone uh, to bury their son. And that's the difference between the 1970s and today. I, I don't, say this to say the sting is any less, the loss is any less profound. No, that's not, that's not the point. But the point is that today the American people realize that whether they support a policy or they don't support a policy, that our country relies on volunteers, men and women who are willing to do something that's greater than themselves, in some cases willing to do things that cause them or their families to experience extraordinary sacrifice and if nothing else, even when they don't awkwardly know what to say or they say something that sounds routine, like thank you for your service or something, the point is that our society today recognizes and appreciates service. They recognize and appreciate service. And, and you know, God help us if we lose that. Um, it's so important. And, and that's why I think that the kind of organizations that we're a part of they have to be sustained. This can't be a two or three years in the wake of OIF or OEF. This has to be, many of these young men and women have made an enduring commitment that's gonna affect them for the rest of their lives or their families, as you well know, for the rest of their lives. Our commitment has to be no less enduring. And that's what, that's what, that's what this is all about is, is we have something I think that is uh, good in our society today in terms of appreciation for veterans, but we shouldn't take it for granted. And in my case, I think I wanna do a small part to try to make sure that it's sustained well beyond you know, the, 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 the wars themselves. Well, I think you're doing more than, than just a small part. Um, and uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you do, not only for the Travis Manning Foundation, but the other organizations in which you volunteer with and serve on the boards with, and you know, just for the the greater military community, um, your leadership is needed uh, still, and you are the perfect example of uh, we still need you out of uniform. We still need you. We need your leadership, and we need your service uh, to this country, General Dumford. I want to end today with the question I ask every guest as we're closing out the Resilient Life podcast, and that is. What does living a resilient life look like for you? Yeah, look, I, that is a question I have thought about a little bit. I didn't know you asked that question at the end. I've listened to some of the podcasts, but I don't think I ever got to the last question. Um, what I have learned about resilience is that you can't be resilient and be alone. 
they're incompatible. They're incompatible. Being resilient is actually when you know that you are going through something and you are with people that are going to help you get through that, then you, then you can be resilient. Um, sure. Most challenges, if you've, if you've experienced challenges in the past and you can visualize getting through a challenge that can be described as optimism. It can be described as, uh, you know, ability to accomplish a task. It can't be re described as resilient because resilient by definition means you came pretty close to being on your butt, right? I mean, thing, this, th things are not good if you had to be resilient. You've been tested. You have been tested. And the thing that I have learned over time is that when you develop personal relationships of trust, when you surround yourself with positive people who you can count on in a pinch, when you know that you're not going to go through something alone, that's being resilient. And uh, it isn't, you know, you could describe all kinds of characteristics and qualities and things you should do to be more resilient. But, but my own personal example or my own personal experience tells me that when I've felt like I'm part of a team and, I'm, you know, of course, I've spent my life, as we talked about, surrounded by people who I think very highly of. And when you're surrounded by people, even in the people like that are in the fund, right, the Travis Mania Foundation, those kind of people, and you're confronted with a challenge and you know that they're with you, how could you do anything but visualize a successful outcome to whatever challenge you're dealing with? And so to me, um, resilience, certainly there's a personal aspect of it, but a big part of resilience is being a part of a team and knowing you're a part of a team and relying on that team to help you when you need it. Totally. Cannot go it alone. I think relationships are everything. And, and I look back and, you know, I've never heard it framed that way, but now looking back on all the different challenges I face throughout my life and the resilience I've tried to demonstrate to work through those times where I've landed on my butt, as you said, and it's so true. I've never moved forward alone. I've always right. moved forward with a group of people, with a team of people by my side. Uh, incredibly true. You know, Ryan, just last comment, because it really is about TMF. If you think about the men and women that came back from previous wars and it was a different time and a different social structure. And so they went to the local VFW post to be together. What was that all about? Uh, it was about being around people with a shared experience, sometimes not even have to talk about it, just being around them and then having that sense of community so that, you know, if you needed to paint the house or put up a fence or your car broke down, you had a network that you could count on. Well, we're doing it a different way now, right? It's 2021. And so it's not 1950 and we're not all hanging around in a VFW post, but what we're doing are things like being active in the community, contributing to the community. Who are we doing it with? We're doing it with those people who bring out the best in us. And, and I think that, you know, that's a big piece of, um, resilience for our veterans is what gave me resilience as a Marine was knowing that I was part of the Marine Corps, that I was part of a team. How could this team ever fail? It never, it never failed. So how can I fail? I'm on this team. Right. I think that's very much what we're, we're trying to do with the foundation in our veterans is that that team continues uh, well after they're in uniform and they can continue to visualize a successful outcome to any challenge because just like when they're in uniform and they were on a team they could trust, they know that the men and women on the left and right inside of TMF are the same kind of people. And whether it's a personal obstacle that they're dealing with or you know something in their employment or whatever it happens to be, they know they're gonna get through it. And, and I think that's what resilience is at the end of the day is resilience comes from the ability to visualize a successful outcome to the test that you're enduring. If you can visualize a successful outcome, you'll get through it. Yeah, absolutely. And I always say that about TMF, what, you know, the, well, what is, what is the Travis Manning foundation? And I always will start with we're a community, a community right. of like-minded individuals that want to go out and continue serving the, the greater country at large and help to strengthen our nation's character.
General Dumford, thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited for people to hear this conversation. I know they're, I mean, again, I wanted to pick up my pen every time you were talking and start scribbling down your words of wisdom. It's been incredible to have this time with you, to gain your insight. And like I said before, I am thankful both for your leadership and your service, both in uniform and your continued service and leadership outside of uniform. Thank you all for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Please make sure to like, like subscribe, and share with your friends. Thank you, General Dumford. Hey, thanks, Ryan.